And after another six months or maybe a year after I'd launched it, I started getting offers for speaking engagements and video commissions and stuff like that. It was brave. It was technically innovative. Like they weren't technical whizzes, these guys. They were clever guys, but they weren't technical wizards. You're not going to do original stuff. You're going to do stuff that sounds just like the people uh, that you're into. Uh, and that's totally cool. That's the way that everybody starts. Everybody starts out being derivative. It, it's so awesome and frightening to hear that I've been in your life for a friggin' decade now. That's wild. When I did Everything is Remix, you could recognize remix culture as a subculture, but basically now it just is culture at this point. Hey there, welcome to episode eight. This episode is dedicated to all the listeners who have rated and reviewed us on their platforms. I'd like to mention those who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Big thanks to True Drew, E. Pasola, Izuchuku, AltGuy94, Tobias Mex, and Justin Finkelstein. I'll find more reviews on other platforms and give shout outs in other episodes. My intro here lasts about three minutes, so feel free to skip ahead. However, it lays a lot of the foundational context for why I went in this direction today. It also reveals a little about my why for Codeless. I believe a curious mind and a willingness to be the stupid one have been my biggest strengths. I've been able to turn what I thought was a bug in my code, asking a lot of questions, into a feature as the host of Codeless. No code is definitely a glimpse into the future, but it's not new. In fact, and according to our guest, a lot of things aren't as new as we might think. Kirby Ferguson is a filmmaker, writer, and speaker. He's widely famous for his 2012 docuseries titled Everything is a Remix. It went viral shortly after it came out, and his TED Talk on remixing has garnered over one and a half million views. I followed Kirby for close to a decade, and getting to have this time with him was like meeting another maker that never fails to inspire you. In this jam session, Kirby lays a blueprint that's been hidden in plain sight. So if you press play with an expectation to hear about no-code tech, imagine this to be the diversion you'll be glad to take. Kirby explains the blueprint for creativity and provides actionable advice and encouragement for us to copy, combine, and transform. We'll start with an excerpt from Kirby's docuseries titled, Everything is a Remix. I hope this helps you as much as it's helped me. Enjoy. The act of creation is surrounded by a fog of myths. Myths that creativity comes via inspiration, that original creations break the mold, that they're the products of geniuses and appear as quickly as electricity can heat a filament. But creativity isn't magic. It happens by applying ordinary tools of thought to existing materials. And the soil from which we grow our creations is something we scorn and misunderstand, even though it gives us so much. And that's copying. Put simply, copying is how we learn. We can't introduce anything new until we're fluent in the language of our domain. And we do that through emulation. For instance, all artists spend their formative years producing derivative work. 
Bob Dylan's first album contained 11 cover songs. Richard Pryor began his stand-up career doing a not very good imitation of Bill Cosby. And Hunter S. Thompson retyped The Great Gatsby just to get the feel of writing a great novel. Nobody starts out original. We need copying to build a foundation of knowledge and understanding. And after that, things can get interesting. My name is Kirby Ferguson. I am a filmmaker. I am originally Canadian, but I now live in the United States. I am best known for a series called Everything is a Remix, which was a four-part free video series on the net that went viral around 2012 or something like that. And I just completed a series called This Is Not a Conspiracy Theory, which you can find at thisisnotaconspiracytheory.com. And that is about where conspiracies came from, why they're important, what we can learn from them, and what the true systemic forces are that shape our lives. So I'm ecstatic. I'm sure my listeners can tell, but why don't you just give us a brief intro into your origin story and just mm -hmm. talk briefly about your different identities and what you do. It, it's so awesome and frightening to hear that I've been in your life for a freaking decade now. That's wild. My name is Kirby Ferguson. I am a filmmaker. I am best known for a series called Everything is a Remix, which was a four-part free video series that went viral on the internet around 2010 to 2014 or so. My latest project, which I just completed, is called This is Not a Conspiracy Theory, which I just finished, and it is a commercial series that you buy for $15. That's at thisisnotaconspiracytheory.com, and it's kind of about the origin of conspiracy theories and why people believe in them. But what it's ultimately about is the real systemic forces that influence our lives, that guide our lives. And so I started as a graphic designer way back in the day, a long time ago, gradually transitioned over to video production, and I got a break when, when Everything is Remix came out. It was just something I was doing on the side, like for fun. And then it took off pretty quickly. And I knew like, whoa, this is a, a strong reaction. And after another six months or maybe a year after I'd launched it, I started getting offers for speaking engagements and video commissions and stuff like that. And I realized like, wow, I can quit uh, my job and, and make a go of it doing this for a while at least. And I've managed to keep it going since then. So it's been more than eight years that I've been managing to make a go of it as an independent video producer. That's really impressive to hear. Honestly, I just love your point of view. Let me ask you this. As a creator, a lot of times people tend to think this stuff happens overnight. Was this an intended route you wanted to take going into film and production? Or were you just like messing around and trying stuff and then a spark happened? Yeah, it was the latter. I assumed that I would always have a day job and I would do these fun things on the side. I never imagined that they could become a livelihood. It's just something that I did on the side <clears throat> that happened to resonate. And then I've just been improvising since then, keeping it going. All right, let's get into the meat of this conversation. So just so you know, Kirby, the podcast is called Codeless. It really focuses on the idea of unleashing creativity and enabling mm -hmm. transformation. And one area where that is happening right now is, is an area called no code. I think you're going to be like the wizard of Oz and paint the yellow brick road for us. <laughs> Jeez, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of our listeners, um, a lot of times they just want to talk about no code technology and tools that are helping people do things without writing a single line of code. The framework you're helping us build or the road you're helping us pave is really the mental model 
So if I could just interject to you, the name of the series is Everything is a Remix. Remix everything. That's my Twitter handle. I'm sorry. Got it. Let's start by you just explain the concept of Everything is a Remix um, mm -hmm. and, and just start off and then I'll, I'll interject with some questions. Sure. Everything is a Remix is something that I created basically for my teenage self. I didn't think of it this way at the time, but that in retrospect is what I was doing. I was someone who really struggled with the concept of originality. I was just in awe of originality, right? Like I idolized people who seemed to have that ability and I had no clue where I came from. And then just over the years, I accumulated this knowledge that, oh, like you, it's just something that you develop in time. You can get lucky to develop an, an original voice. But basically, it's something where you're, you're taking existing ideas, you copy ideas, you transform them, and you combine them with other ideas. So copy, transform, combine is the little formula that I come up with. So this insight that I slowly developed over years that oh, you get new ideas come out of old ideas. Like it sounds obvious, it is obvious, but it, it wasn't obvious to me as a young person starting out creating. And I really felt like that held me back. Like if I had had that sort of direction, like here, try this, just take things and fiddle around with them and change them and put something new out. And it doesn't have to be great, just something different. That's how you get started. And you're going to be a derivative at, at, at the beginning. You're not going to do original stuff. You're going to do stuff that sounds just like the people uh, that you're into. Uh, and that's totally cool. That's the way that everybody starts. Everybody starts out being derivative. Everybody starts out with just copying. So it's basically kind of a, a video series that I made for a younger me. A, a lot of other people happened to face the same issues, I think, and that's why it caught on the way it did. So if these three pieces, copy, transform, combine, are mm -hmm. the building blocks of creativity, is there any area of human creativity that this doesn't apply? Not as far as I know, no. The only thing that I can think of that is not a remix is the Big Bang. Um, <laughs> that came, as far as we know, came from, from what we would call nothing. But there's no human creation that, that is not deeply indebted to what came before. I just don't think this is disputable, really. Like, there couldn't be a Beethoven uh, 6,000 years ago. There wasn't enough accumulation of musical theory developed to have that sort of creator. You couldn't have had an iPhone in, in the age of the Egyptians because they're just, that knowledge had not been built up by then. So there are people who can leap ahead. People like Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein can leap ahead, but there's only so far you can go. So I still stand by it. And honestly, I'm the type of guy where if I thought I got the idea wrong, I would throw it overboard and, and disown it. But the reason I was confident in making the argument to begin with is that it, it, it's obvious. It's just obviously true. A lot of people have said it in different forms for a very long time. It's not a real novel idea. I just kind of put a different spin on it. Yeah. I mean, it makes me feel uh, really confident in the sense of if this were a tattoo, I'd never regret putting this on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know what language you've created around remixers. I don't know what we'd call them, but basically if we're thinking of creators and we just call them remixers, what would you say has been a common thread in a lot of the creators and remixers that you've seen? I mean, because to me, everybody's doing it, right? The commonalities I see are the copying, the transforming, and the combining. Yeah. Since I did the series, it's even more pervasive. Like now we're in the meme era and we've got new platforms like TikTok that are really about taking other people's stuff and sticking it together with yours and, and building on top of other people's ideas. 
So if anything, it's even more it's even more a part of people's lives. You were talking about an iPhone couldn't have been created 6,000 years ago because the body of knowledge and understanding hadn't developed. So would you agree that the ability to do things easier or put abstractions on top of complex issues is also a factor that enables the speed of innovation and remixing. Yeah, platforms, undoubtedly. Like just something as elemental as the web. I mean, the original version of of the web, where like you could take pages, you could put photos in them, and you could create hyperlinks. Like hyperlinks were a huge deal, right? That means of navigating data didn't really exist in, in a popular way then. So uh, Tim Berners-Lee invented the web and then boom, like all these amateurs and people like me and whoever can suddenly post things to anybody on the planet. And we didn't have to invent that freaking network that goes all over the place. And he didn't have to invent the actual piping that goes all over the place as well, right? So he's building on top of the plumbing of the internet and what cable companies and, and telephone companies had built as physical structures. So there's this buildup of strata that people could build on top of to, to build more and more profound innovations. Like I would say the web is more profound than the telephone. I want to get into another part of this episode where I really want to talk about great creators in different fields. Let's start with music and just mm-hmm. audio. Just give us like a chronological set of cliff notes about that with relation to the concept of everything being a remix. I don't know if I have a fantastic answer to that, but I talk about hip hop at the beginning of Everything is Remix. And to me, that a bunch of normal dudes, like clever guys, but just regular guys in Harlem and and the Bronx, they did this audacious thing of of taking somebody else's music and like making new music out of it, right? That isn't something that people did. So it took this brave leap to like, I'm going to take Sheik's Good Times and I'm going to loop it and I'm going to talk on top of it. Like that was bold. Like people didn't do that sort of thing. So hip hop to me figures prominently because it was taking copyrighted stuff, stuff that's out there that was considered kind of sacred and off limits and can't touch that stuff. It was brave. It was technically innovative. Like they weren't technical whizzes, these guys. They were clever guys, but they weren't technical wizards. It was very much about just having the dexterity to actually do these things with a turntable. And that turned out to be sampling, right? I think you can look at creativity itself as a kind of sampling, a kind of collecting snippets of things from here and there all over and mashing together and transforming them. So I think of hip hop to me as being kind of the modern birth of of the idea of remixing. And then in the doc series I show using the example of Led Zeppelin, like a classic rock band from well before the era of hip hop how that idea has been out there forever. And people have been in effect sampling without like literally taking music and and creating duplicates of it. Let's talk about movies. There are a lot of movies we've grown up to love, but what was fascinating I found in your doc series was how so many of these creators were just blatantly copying each other. We're talking about an industry that has created lots of value and made a lot of people rich. Like, let's just talk about that. Sure. I mean, the example I use in the series is Star Wars, which as far as I know, was the first movie I saw as a kid, certainly the first one that had like a big impact on me. So me and everybody else, right? Like it was just this huge thing for anybody that was 
was alive in the 70s or the early 80s. So Star Wars was what really blew my mind. And then to find out later, and this idea is much more, this is circulated a lot more than it had when I made Everything is Remix. That film, as innovative as it, and it was innovative, I do not dispute that it was innovative. It was this mashup of like Western films and samurai films and war movies and other science fiction films, all kind of like, given this science fiction veneer, but kind of these well-established tropes and scenes from other films that were brought together to tell a new story. And then, of course, it used the structure of something called the Witch, a fellow named Joseph Campbell wrote about this classic structure of fables and, and mythic hero tales. George Lucas was a super film geek, and he had that ability to remember things in this very precise kind of way and he also they even spliced stuff into star wars as well like they took shots from war films and actually like stuck them in the film so there was a bit of like like actual sampling going on as well but star wars is the example that i talked about to me that figures prominently kind of like the way that uh hip-hop does for for music popular music is, is hip-hop now and in a lot of ways popular entertainment is Star Wars now, right? Like Marvel movies are some sort of distant descendant. So Star Wars for me is kind of the big bang of, yeah. of movie remixing. Okay, let's go into technology. The major example that I talked about was the Mac and how like Apple is generally maybe less so than they were when I, definitely less so because Steve Jobs has now died since the series came out. But Apple and Steve Jobs were these sort of fabled figures. People just did not comprehend how uh, companies could be as innovative as Apple was. It seemed like this sort of magical supernatural ability. So the story that I told in episode three of Everything is a Remix was about the original Macintosh and how it was heavily indebted to the work of Xerox. So Xerox was sort of doing the original R&D of these ideas, kind of in a less elegant, less user-friendly kind of way. But they developed a lot of these original ideas and they were drawing them from the realm of hardcore computer science, academic type stuff and, and not commercial products. So they were drawing from this well of non-consumer products. And then Jobs was kind of higher up the evolutionary chain where he was pulling from these guys who were developing actual products that were shipping and, and being sold and stuff like that. So he built on top of ideas that were out there in uh, commercial form. Right. So I, I think in, in serious computer history now, I think Xerox gets the credit for the desktop metaphor of modern computers and, and all that. But outside of there, I, I feel like a lot of people still think Apple invented all that stuff with the Mac. And uh, it's just not the case. They definitely took it farther and they developed, developed a commercial product that was reasonably priced. Lots of achievements there that are incredibly impressive, technically amazing and amazing business accomplishments. But a big part of the, the credit has to be shared with Xerox. When we copy, we justify it. When others copy, we vilify it. Most of us have no problem with copying as long as we're the ones doing it. If remixing has led to such great value creation over history, what typically happens to the early remixers compared to the mass adopters and the late bloomers? Like who reaps the rewards and who takes the most risk? I mean, it varies, but it seems like the early innovators often get burnt, right? And it depends when it hits that tipping point of adoption, right? Like where along the, the, the evolutionary stages does this thing turn into something that is widely adopted? 
And generally with the early phases of whatever, if it's a product or a musical genre or whatever, it's usually in a little subculture of its own, right? So it's not being used by the broader culture. So generally it takes a while for something to, to hit a tipping point and explode and go exponential and get adopted by everybody. So usually it's people who come along kind of later. And to me, that's kind of part of the Apple formula. Like people were making smartwatches for years and years before Apple were making them, right? Like they come along when they see, okay, like there's a market here and we, I, I, we, we can add value in this market. So they come along later. And I think that's what they've done with a lot of their products over the year. I think they've really honed in on that formula. They're coming along at these inflection points, these sort of tipping points where things can really take off. And then they execute these things so beautifully right. that they're more usable by, by a broader audience. So I think, generally speaking, it's the earlier people that get burnt, unfortunately. You can see in rock and roll, like when I talk about the history of rock in Everything is Remix, like a lot of the original blues guys got ripped off in various ways. So they were making music in like the forties and fifties and they were hugely influential on bands like the Beatles and the Stones and Led Zeppelin and all these guys, but they were never huge acts on their own. Like, like these guys ultimately became. And then race of course was a factor with, with these guys as well. But these early innovators often get the short end of the stick, I think. So generally it's people who come along a bit later and sometimes very late. Like you never know when it's going to happen. Right. In your research, does it work better with teams of people or yeah. individuals working in separate corners? Because in the doc series, you mentioned something about the concept of multiple discovery. So yeah. talk about that in terms of teams and individuals toiling away in different places. I think there's advantages to both. They're both kinds of teams, right? Like even if you're working on your own, you're accumulating knowledge from the culture that you're within. You're copying stuff willy-nilly from all over the net. You're on social media. So there's all sorts of ways where you are working with this kind of larger team. So I think there are only teams. And I think there's advantages and disadvantages to kind of being on your own and pursuing your own sort of vision versus the more team-oriented, group-mind sort of thing that you'd get with a team. So I think they both have their advantages and they're both kind of worthwhile pursuits. What was the last part of the question that you had there? The concept oh, multiple of discovery. Multiple, multiple discovery, discovery yeah, yeah. So multiple discovery would apply to people who are geographically isolated from one another or uh, isolated in terms of communication is a better way of saying it nowadays. But it's when people who, who are not exposed to each other's ideas somehow come up with the same idea. And so this, this has happened lots of times throughout history. Like calculus got invented by Alfred Leibniz and Isaac Newton. They hadn't known of each other's work. It's just they were building kind of with the same toolbox and they happened to both hit the point where they could come up with the same uh, creation at the same time. So this happens lots and lots because of copy transform combined, right? Like we're right. all building with these same sorts of tools and people come up with very similar things at about the same time. Uh, so multiple discovery is, to me is kind of a, a separate concept that applies to people who aren't exposed, who aren't teams, who aren't exposed to one another. But it's worth noting that when somebody out there comes up with something that is similar to you, it doesn't necessarily mean that they found you and ripped you off. It can just mean that you guys are both kind of uh, drinking from the same well and came up with the same idea at about the same time. So in this community that I'm a part of, No Code, one thing that I found is that, first of all, as far as the phases, No Code has been going on for decades. But okay. basically, like we're in this phase where a lot of people are copying 
and combining things and of course transforming them but especially mm-hmm. in the area of copying what what's happening in the community is that it seems to be that there's this like idea saturation where everyone's in the same fishbowl and yeah. it forms this sort of an eco chamber and yeah. so what what you're saying with your concept of multiple discovery is that it's not abnormal to feel like you're hearing from the same people or feeling like people are doing the same thing you are. Yeah, well, I mean, I think an important thing to keep in mind there is that if you're in these subcultures that are getting kind of isolated, where everybody's kind of reading the same things, everybody's kind of watching the same things, everybody's playing the same games, et cetera, like everybody's going to kind of come up with the same sorts of ideas. So I think, I don't know if I made this explicit in everything as a remix, but an important or no, I think I did. An important idea is that you have to pull from foreign uh, cultures. I talked about the printing press in, in Everything's Remix, the, the third episode, how Gutenberg brought together these, these innovations that were out there. They've been out there for decades and centuries. Most of them had been around for centuries. But what was novel and inspired about what he did was that these things didn't seem related. Like he took like the screw press, the thing that you you would use to press the pages, you would twist this press to press the ink onto the pages. That was used in making oil or wine, so pressing liquids out of things. So he took this thing from food production and he brought it into uh, printing. So engaging with different cultures, drawing things from realms that other people aren't looking into, I think that's an important thing for people to get in mind. Don't let yourself get too insular and too isolated in your little subculture because then you'll just do the same thing that everybody else is doing. Got it. And that's probably one of the reasons why you noted this statistic. I think the statistic was based on the decade 2005 to 2015, but it went something like in terms of movies, 74% of the highest Mm -hmm. grossing movies are actually like remixes of other forms of art or genres. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that's higher now too. That's an old stat now, but because movies are so expensive, it's a risk-averse industry, right? So you want to know that something works. So there's less original film. By original, I mean something that wasn't a movie before or a TV show before or a novel before or a comic book before or a play before or whatever. But that's often what we get now because producers want to know that there's a there's some success. Those are the incentives that are that are work in, in film production because it's super expensive. You kind of want to know that something's got an audience and, and has some potential before you dump your millions and tens of millions of dollars into it. Speaking of statistics, there's another statistic you mentioned, and it was in relation to, you, I, I guess, where we are in the modern age now with things like the smartphone industry and software. You said 62% of patent lawsuits were over software. And so my question is this, it seems to me that there's a lot of lawsuits going on just over software and technology. What are some unintended consequences of this idea of copyright and patents or just flaws in the system that are kind of going against the derivative nature of creativity as it should have been? Well, I mean, copyright trolls and patent trolls are the unintended consequence of intellectual property in technology. This is something that wouldn't have been imagined by people who created these laws to begin with. But when you create those incentives and the way that it works is you don't have to actually make something that actually works, right? You can just file a patent like I've got this idea rather than like I actually made this piece of software and it actually works and it does these things. It's just here's an idea that's kind of like 
and then anything that comes out in the world that uh, resembles that you can potentially uh, claim is infringing on on your patents. So patent trolls and copyright yeah. trolls are most certainly the, the unintended consequence of intellectual property in software. And I haven't been following that field for a while, so I'm not really up in it, but it seems like it's gotten better. It seems like there's been some reforms there and things have gotten better, but it does make one wonder with patents in particular, is it worth the minefield that creators have to navigate now with creating new technology? That's one of those realms where I have historically wondered, like, are these things worth it? And lots of companies don't even uh, pursue patents with their software. They just keep them as trade secrets, so they keep them private and other people are, are never exposed to them. Right. So there's also lots of people out there who pursue just entirely different ways of uh, protecting their ideas. And then, of course, there's the open source movement where people just share things and think they can maximize value without commercially selling the product and, and capitalizing on it financially. So yeah, trolls, uh, people who don't make things and sort of get in the way and of people yeah. who are making things. That's the unintended consequence of it. So why were these laws created? Like, what was the aim in the original sense? Oh, their aim was to foster creativity, to foster new inventions, because the big guy can come in and copy your thing and mass produce it more cheaply than you can and can blow you out of the water, right? So you need some period of time where the idea is just yours and, and nobody can copy it, right? So with copyright, originally it, it, it was quite literally that. It was the right to copy, right? It is exactly what it sounds like. And it was about paper. It was about books. And if you didn't have that, then when you released your book, just instantly everybody could copy it willy-nilly uh, all over the place and everybody else could be making money off your book while you're not making any money potentially. So it's applying the idea of property, which originally applied to land, applying it, applying it to ideas. And I think it mostly works. I think it, I do fundamentally support the idea of copyrights and patents and intellectual property in general. I don't know how you would get around it. I know that I'd say the patents are too long, but copyright protection is just way too long. That's my big problem with it. It just goes on for forever for basically a couple of lifetimes, but they are intended to be incentives for creativity. So when they come into conflict with incentivizing creativity, that, that's where we get real problems. You didn't mention it, but I kind of piece this together. It seems like there's an evolution of a remixer. Like there are companies that started mm -hmm. out really, really small, yeah. copying, combining and transforming, but then later on, they never allowed people to copy them. Can we talk sure. about some of those and just lay out some examples you mentioned yeah. in the doc? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned Apple. I mentioned Steve Jobs for that because, of course, Apple drew from the ideas of, of Xerox extensively in a way that probably would have been infringement if we'd had the laws now that we have then. No question. I mean, I, I doubt they even would have tried it in our, our, our modern environment. And then once... Android did the same thing to them. Steve Jobs had a meltdown and claimed it was a stolen product and all this stuff, even though that was their history. And the iPhone itself was, was quite indebted to lots of other less commercial products that, that were out there at the time as well. I talk about loss aversion in the series. Like we're, we're very oriented towards not losing what we've got. It's sort of a little heuristic that's in everybody's brain. And it makes great sense. I totally get it. Because if you've got... Uh, a bird in the hand is worth two in the tree, right? Like when you've got something that has high value, like above all, don't lose the fruit that you've got right now. Don't lose what you've got. And you don't risk, even if you can get a lot more fruit by trying some other tactic, people will make that trade. I would say, no, I'm going to keep this you know, little handful of fruit and, and 
in exchange for potentially getting this big basket of fruit because that's safer like that will keep that's the safer tactic that will keep you alive that worked to survive right <laughs> like that's right. why that got embedded in our brains because it kept us alive so we're very sensitive to loss and when you get bigger and you've got something to lose, potentially, you've got things that other people are copying. That's when people get protective of their ideas. So it's a, it's a pretty human thing. I don't get too bent out of shape about people feeling that way. But at the same time, I think you've got to recognize that you were doing the same thing, probably, that people are doing to you. Right. When you, when you get bigger and more successful. And it, it's kind of the cost of becoming popular. Yeah, yeah. You kind of you kind of want to be popular, but you wish people didn't bother you and you just can't have <laughs> can't, both. Can't have it all. Know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For people listening, maybe you're speaking to yourself 10 years ago now and that person is listening. How can people start to think and identify great areas of human endeavor where they can start to practice remix culture, maybe mm -hmm. as a little guy going on notice, like now that you've been at it for a while, what are some markers that you would use to identify great areas that are rife for remixing? Well, I mean, I think it's about novelty, right? So it's kind of about finding new frontiers and building there, right? So you're looking in small things. Once something's big, you're too late at that point, right? Like the gold rush is on now and you're too late. But I think the main thing that I, I think people should pursue is your interests. Like, what do you love? What do you care about? What are you passionate about? What would you like to see improve the most? I'm more of like a creator. I'm more of just a, a creative person who's interested in as much as I can, just pursuing things that I'm interested in that I think have potential insight to to people aside from myself so you're you're telling us to be contrarian to find niches but to find yep. niches that we love that's awesome. that's the ultimate that's the, if you can if you can make that venn diagram of like it's obscure and i love it that's great that's perfect if you can do that it's it seems to me when you're talking about following your interests and you and you lay out your story i think in analogies and i almost think like your career is like just a, a really rich lasagna and you just added so many layers on top, right? I like, I like that analogy. It's delicious. Yeah. I mean, we're all just trying to make the best lasagna. And so you're, <laughs> you're telling us, you're telling us to like go out and find things that we love and they don't have to be traditional things, but to find things that we love that are in like nice niches that when we combine them in our lasagna, like you become totally different from everyone. That's great. Yeah, that's wow. a good encapsulation of, of where I'm coming from. <laughs> lasagna. That's lasagna. all we talked about. Make today. the best. Make the best lasagna you can, folks. That's that's my parting wisdom. What is a question I didn't ask you that you wish I had? <laughs> I wish you asked me about my new thing. My new thing is called. This is not a conspiracy theory, and it's really the, the thing that I'm passionate about now. Everything is remixes. I still love it, and probably in the next year, maybe even two years, because like, I think I want to be promoting, this is not a conspiracy theory for the next while, but, but there pro pro probably will be everything's remix coming, stuff coming up because I, I do still have an interest in it, but I'm kind of onto something else. Yeah, this is not a conspiracy theory is something that I also think where I feel like I got lucky with, with the timing of it because it's conspiracy mania in uh, contemporary politics right now. So this is not a conspiracy theory is about why people believe these things, why they matter, and what they tell us about the way that we all think. Because I think we all have a natural bent towards thinking kind of conspiratorial and think people are planning things and orchestrating things and making things happen that are their intent. 
but sort of like we talked about with unintended consequences with uh, patent trolls and copyright trolls. When you create rules, when you create new kinds of systems, unintended consequences can follow. And the series ultimately is about that. So it's, it's about technology as well, but it's about how systems, the rules that we make, they, if anything, are the conspiracy. And they are not like people. Uh, systems are not like people. They don't have intents. They don't have plans. They're highly unpredictable. And they're our creations. Like we made them. And yet they have uh, outcomes that we did not imagine and did not envision. So ultimately, the series is, is about systems. It's an attempt to illuminate the concept of systems and have people integrate that uh, yeah. into their life. So it, it does overlap a bit with Everything is Remix, which is about the system of copyright and how this uh, system that was intended to incentivize creativity actually could, in some cases, suppress it. So this is not a conspiracy theory is complete now. It's, it's a seven part video series, very similar to Everything's a Remix in terms of format. And it's $15 and you can get it at thisisnotaconspiracytheory.com. So tell us where yep. people can find you, your merchandise, and even if they want to like reach out like me and just tell you you're an awesome guy, where can they find you? <laughs> well, you can find me at thisisnotconspiracytheory.com for This Is Not a Conspiracy Theory, which is my new thing that I'm most excited about. And everythingisremix.info is the site for everythingisremix.com. And if you hop on my mailing list there, that's a good way to keep up with whatever I get up to in the future. Got it. Got it. I'm looking forward to more of your projects. And just tell us, because our, our listeners, a lot of our listeners are on Twitter. How can mm -hmm. we follow you on Twitter? Yeah, you can follow me at Remix Everything on Twitter. Good. So that concludes this. Thank you so much for coming. Hey, really my pleasure. Having you. Yeah, yeah. No problem. My pleasure. Well, that concludes this episode of Codeless. I hope you had a fun time. If you gained anything from the episode, I'd appreciate you rating, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with someone you know. It helps the podcast get discovered by other folks who are curious about unlocking creativity and enabling transformation. Keep listening past the credits for some closing remarks from our guest. You can reach me on the same social channels by searching for the Codeless Podcast handle. Just search for the words Codeless and Podcast, and you can't miss us. All music was provided through the appropriate licensing and permissions. Big thanks for the music to Steph Skilly, Bobby Oddsock, Rmark1313, Raising Sounds, and Prod.NoCredit. You can find more information and links in the show notes. Remix culture basically took over culture. When I did Everything is Remix, you could recognize remix culture as a subculture, but basically now it just is culture at this point with social media and TikTok and powerful desktop or mobile applications that everybody's got where you can take existing media and chop it up and splice it into new stuff. Remix culture just is everything now. It is everywhere. It has taken over. So what I once thought of as a subculture just has consumed culture. Remix culture just it truly is culture at this point. Predictions are risky business. I think anybody who makes predictions, you should definitely take with a grain of salt. And I definitely would take mine with a grain of salt. I'm just making this uh, prediction for sport, really. But I would just expect more of the same with uh, remix culture over the next 10 years. Like it will just be more and more prevalent and more and more accepted.
by everyone. It will be the way that people create. Whether that's good or not, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's a, people can go too far with that and maybe people should be engaging with life rather than media more. I certainly could, could see that argument being made by people.